Let's pray together. God, I just uh, I thank you for this time that we can spend together every Sunday morning and just remember what's real. Remember why it is that we're here and why it is that we love you and we thank you for that grace in which we stand. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was uh, talking with someone not too long ago who was checking out Westridge and he had no real religious upbringing, no church background, and considered himself to be an agnostic, which is to say that for all practical purposes, he's ambivalent to any beliefs in God, really. And he wanted to find out my take on the Christian faith, and I wanted to find out his take on being an agnostic, and so we sat down and we began to chat. But as we began to talk about his own faith, or the lack thereof, He said something that surprised me. He said, as far as the values of the Christian faith go, he said, I can accept that. Because many of the things that I believe in are the same beliefs in the Christian faith. Like, I think it's good to love your neighbor as yourself and all that stuff. And I really do enjoy the whole church thing, he said. The music is great. Messages, eh, Well, the music's fantastic. But then he paused for a minute and he said, I guess if I were to sum it up in one word, what my real issue with Christianity really is, he said, I'd have to say it's Jesus. I have a real problem with the whole Jesus thing. He said, how can a loving God throw a good person into the pits of hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. Ah, now we've gotten down to the crux of the issue. Which, quite frankly, is an issue that a lot of people have, even people who call themselves Christians. And so I asked him, so then do you believe that everybody in the world then should go to heaven no matter what they've done in this life? And he said, well, no. Well then, I said, who wouldn't you let in? If it were up to you, who doesn't make the cut? He said, well, you know, like bad people. People who like steal and kill and all that stuff. And I said, okay. Have you ever been classified as a bad person in your life at any point? He said, well, I've certainly done some bad things in my life, but, you know, I don't think I would be considered to be a bad person. Fair enough. So, we were sitting by a chalkboard, and I handed him a piece of chalk, and I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw a line down the middle of the board, and on the top half, I want you to write heaven, and on the bottom half, I want you to write hell. And then I want you to think of everybody that you know in your life, and I want you to put them in one category or the other. He's like, I can't do that. That's impossible. I said, well, if you believe, like most people do, that there should be people who don't go to heaven, then where do you draw the line? Is it only those who can keep it down to maybe just one sin a day? 
Or should it be only one sin a month as the criteria for entrance into heaven? Or maybe it's just one sin a year. And if it's just one sin a year, how many of us are going to get in? Because I can tell you that my sin quota is a little higher than that. Or maybe, should we just draw the line based on how severe the sin really is? Should we, the line be drawn necessarily for people who steal? Can we draw the line there? But what about like the 10-year-old kid in India who's starving to death and he steals a loaf of bread just to survive? What about that? Is he in? Can we draw the line for people who lie? That if people who lie shouldn't be able to get in? And then if we draw the line there, is it for people who just tell big lies? Or can it also be for people who tell little white lies, like when your wife asks you if her butt looks big in this dress? Which, by the way, was a lot easier to say in first service when my wife wasn't sitting on the front row. It's no reflection on my wife's butt, because she has a perfect butt. So, where do you draw the line? And then, if you're somebody who is considered to be in the top half, do you then look down on those who are in the bottom half? How does that play out? If you were God, and you had the chalk, where would you draw the line? Well, good morning, y'all. It is uh, good to have Pastor Scott Alexander in the house somewhere, the roaming around. Scott used to uh, run this joint for several years, and uh, now he's holed up on a little island in the Caribbean called Haiti. And uh, he has, uh, runs a, an incredible ministry there, and uh, we're blessed to have him. And uh, we actually have a group going in in October, so if you were part of the car wash thing, uh, last week, I think we had like 122 cars, but I think that they held everybody up at gunpoint to get them to the car wash. But anyway, all that money goes to uh, uh, get the group over to uh, Haiti to serve with them, so we're uh, very blessed. Uh, so I just want to wrap up this little two-part series uh, that I'm doing called Flawed, and today it is the truth about grace. And I do think uh, that this issue that I alluded to earlier of Jesus being the only way to salvation is a real issue for a lot of people. I mean, it really does, when you hit that question, how can a good God throw good people into hell just because they don't believe in Jesus? I mean, that's a tough question that you know, a lot of us have to grapple with. And um, I think it comes down to the question in your own mind, if that's if it's kind of not by God's rules and it's by your rules and you had the chalk in your hand, where do you draw the line? Right? Who's in? Who's out? If you're the decision maker. Well, Jesus came to blur the line. And he came to change the rules and he said, which was an inc- I mean, it turned religion upside down when he said, you know what? It's not about being a good person or being Moral. It's not about comparing to see whose sins are worse and uh, whose faith is stronger and uh, who's more religious. 
It was Jesus who blurred the lines of what people believed back in that day by eating with the worst of the worst sinners that religious leaders of of his day looked down upon. It was Jesus who blurred the lines by forgiving the woman caught in adultery and the man uh, who stole from his own people. It was Jesus who drew a whole new line as he was hanging there on the cross and he yells out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, referring to the same men who drove the nails into his feet and his hands. Christianity levels the playing field like no other religion in the world, only kind of in the reverse. In that, no one can think themselves any better than anybody else. Christianity is the most inclusive faith that I know because whether you're, no matter what your nationality, no matter what color your skin is, no matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter how severe were the mistakes of your past, there is none of us that are good enough. Whereas a lot of religions want to compare on who's the best, this is all about nobody being good enough. We are all considered to be beggars at the door of God's mercy. But Jesus blurred the lines when he said that he would open the door for anyone, anyone who knocks. The only one who is excluded from Christianity are those who exclude themselves. God himself does not somehow willy-nilly sit up in heaven and try to decide who's in and who's out. We choose We choose to either accept the grace of God or we choose to reject it. When it comes down to it, those of us who choose to live with him in this life, the Bible promises that we will then live with God in the next. And it also says that those of us who reject God in this life will also live without God in the next. By its very definition, hell is the place where God is not. And if it's the place where God is not, I don't want to be there. When we reject Jesus, then we are essentially saying, I don't need anybody to save me. I can save myself. But there is none of us that have that kind of power. There is a a short story that Jesus tells that illustrates this point better than any other that I know. And while it's a little tragic, it makes things abundantly clear on how this whole thing works. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and it begins like this. And this, is, uh, this describes this as Jesus telling a parable. So the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused. And then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. The oxen and the fatted calf have both been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his field, the other to his business. The rest seized the servants and mistreated them and killed them. And the king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. 
So Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like this big bash that the king is throwing for his son's wedding. And anybody who's anybody is going to be there, and they should feel lucky that they've received this invitation to this special event. If you can imagine for a minute, it'd be kind of like if uh, Prince Harry were to all of a sudden kind of decide that he's going to settle down, which I think he's a little more fun than his brother, but... um, So you receive an invitation to the royal wedding in London. And while you may not be a royal watcher, I promise you that if you receive that invitation, you would drop everything, you'd get on a plane to London, and you would go to that wedding feast. I mean, that would be like an incredible thing. And I also bet that you would walk around with that invitation in your pocket, and everybody that you know that you would walk around and show that you were invited to Buckingham Palace so that everybody knew. I mean, it would be a special honor, wouldn't it? So when you think about heaven and who you think is going to get in and who's going to be invited and who's not, who do you have in your head that you know for sure? They're just going to walk straight through those pearly gates and there's a big neon sign flashing saying, welcome. And who do you know is going to try to sneak in the back door? And who do you know that there is no way that they are ever even coming remotely close to those pearly gates. Well, the king sends his servants out to those who had been invited to tell them that the party was starting, and it was time to come to the palace. But those who were invited refused to come. And so the king sent more servants out to say, hey, maybe there was a misunderstanding here, The banquet's ready. It's time. Let's go. But it says the people were more interested in their own lives than the parties. Some went back to the farms and some went back to their businesses. Do you ever find yourself so caught up in the details of life that you just don't have time to commit to anything spiritual? The whole God and church thing is just like a major inconvenience. And you're just too overwhelmed by the stuff of life to make any kind of commitment to serve or to go to church or to read your Bible or pray. And so the invitation just gets thrown in with the rest of the junk mail, stuck in a drawer somewhere, and say, ah, I'll get to it sometime. Well, the passage goes on in verse 8 and says, And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited, they don't deserve to come. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into the street corners, and I want you to invite to the banquet anybody you find. So the servants went out, and they went out into the streets, and they gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Well, it became obvious to the king that those whom he originally invited were looking at the celebration as nothing more than like a big inconvenience. And so the king was upset and he told his servants, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into the street corners. I I want you to invite anybody, anybody you could find, anybody that wants to come, you say, come on. So that's exactly what they did. They went out into the streets and they invited poor people and rich people and drunks and prostitutes and people who worked in high-rises and people who worked in factories. Everyone was invited and soon there were people from every imaginable background sitting in the banquet hall. Can you imagine it? 
And isn't it interesting that he makes a point of letting us know that they have now invited all people, both good and bad. Most people believe that Jesus will make his decision about who gets in and who doesn't based on how good a person lives their life. Presumably like a balance sheet. All of your good stuff on one side, all of your bad deeds on the other side, and when it comes down to the end of your life, you better pray that the good outweighs the bad. But I don't get how, if this banquet is symbolic of the kingdom of heaven, how there's supposedly good people who, of course, were invited first, are no-shows, but then now we see that the banquet hall is filled with people that is both good and bad. How is it that somebody who has lived a bad life gets into heaven? Kind of makes you wonder where God draws his line, doesn't it? Somehow, we've gotten into this comparative morality thing where we say, you know what, I'm not as bad as that person. And no matter how bad is the thing that I've done in my life, it's certainly not bad as what they did. Or we say, how can that person even call themselves a Christian after the way that they live their life? The bottom line is this. Other people's faith their mistakes, their flaws, that's none of our business. It's not our place to judge. In fact, Jesus said, before you go looking for the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, you better take care of the plank that's in your own. In other words, you have enough issues in your own life to worry about without worrying about somebody else's stuff. You ain't got time for that. Keep your focus where it belongs, on your own messed up life. I'm glad the chalk ain't in my hands, huh? Well, as the banquet was getting underway, everyone was having a good time. And so all of a sudden, finally, the king makes his appearance. And we're going to say, this is symbolic of Judgment Day. I am sure that as the king rolls in, The crowd applauds and gives him honor because he was so generous to invite just average people off of the streets. And I'm sure this feeling of gratitude filled the room. But as the king scans the room, something catches his eye. Something's wrong. One person stood out among everybody And the king was not happy. And in verse 11 it says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there, and he was not wearing the wedding clothes. He asked, How did you even get in here without the wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. You see, it was the custom of that day that when you went to a wedding feast with somebody who was as prestigious as a king, the king himself would provide each person with royal robes so that everybody could be not only dressed properly, but that nobody would be looked upon as any better than anybody else based on the way they dressed. Everyone was the same. 
But when the king walks in and sees the guests, he notices a man who was not wearing the wedding clothes. The clothes that the king himself gave him to wear, and he was shocked. So again, if this wedding feast is symbolic of heaven, and you don't get into heaven just because you're good enough, and bad people get in too, then what is it that Jesus is trying to communicate in this story? It appears that there is something highly symbolic about these wedding clothes, doesn't it? That now this man, it appears, has really, really messed up bad for being the only one at the party who wasn't willing to wear the royal robes that the king had generously provided. So this man somehow believes that his clothes were good enough, that he didn't need the king's. And because of his arrogance, he rejects the robe that the king provides for him, and then in an attitude almost of self-entitlement, he marches himself into the room, right to the table, and he takes a seat where he was ready to party, that is, until the king shows up. And this story winds up in verses 13 and 14 when he says, So then the king told the attendants, Tie this man hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. I don't even know what gnashing of teeth is, but I don't want any part of it. This king was obviously ticked. And he says, how ungrateful you are that you wouldn't even put on the clothes that I have graciously provided for you. Until that point, this man had been incredibly presumptuous, thinking that he could come to the king's party on his own terms. He could go in any clothes that he wanted to go in. He was proud of his clothes and the way that he did things. But his arrogance was short-lived when the king ordered his servants to tie up the ungrateful man and throw him out into the darkness. So, let's be very clear as to what this story represents as we break it down. That wedding banquet symbolizes Judgment Day. The king represents God, and the son whom the party was being thrown for represents Jesus. And the first part of the story made it very clear that entrance into heaven is by invitation only. However, every single person is invited. But even though every one of us is invited, we have to accept the invitation and show up. Unfortunately, there are many people out there, many good, moral people, who reject Jesus, who reject the invitation of God's grace, and they have made their choice. The second part of the story represents the fact that there is no way that we can do it on our own. The standard for getting into heaven is that we have to be perfect, which is beyond anything that any of us can achieve on our own. There is only one way that we can become perfect in this world, and that is to accept 
the unconditional forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer because he died on the cross. And that's called grace. That's exactly what those wedding clothes represent. That he takes our dirty, torn rags of sin and mistakes and flaws and he accepts us as we are. And he gives us new robes that are clean and beautiful. Perfect. And there is nothing that we can do to earn that. It is a grace that is given freely by God himself. But unfortunately, there are still those people who think that they can do it on their own terms. They can do it their own way. They like the idea of Jesus. They like the idea of the Christian faith and and going to church, but they want to do it on their own terms, and so they reject the absolute truth of the gospel and show up at the party without the robe of grace. The problem is, you can't be a Christian and believe that you can do it on your own because you're such a good person. Here is the truth of grace. You ain't good enough. And if there was a line that was drawn, neither you or me, we wouldn't make it. We wouldn't make the cut. But Jesus got rid of the line. So that now, no matter how badly we've messed up in our lives, by the grace of God, we can be in. But that also means that when we get to heaven, we may just be a little surprised at who we see and who we don't when we start looking around in the heavenly realms and you all of a sudden you spot somebody and you go, how did he get here? Who let him in? (laughs) Our mission as a church is that we are to bring a little piece of heaven to this earth. That Westridge becomes a place that displays the truth about God's grace. The truth about the God who is the God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. A place where people who are lost and broken and hurting. A place where people who need Jesus can encounter the radical nature of God's love. And you can encounter a little piece of heaven right here in this place. So let's make no mistake about it. When you finally get there, to heaven I mean, you're taking a stroll down the streets of gold. Don't be surprised when you look around and you see people who were former prostitutes. People who have made serious mistakes in their lives. People who were former thieves. Even some politicians. Very few. Maybe even people who have hurt you deeply in your life people that you had trouble forgiving. People who've lived messed up lives 
like me who have encountered God's grace before it was too late. Thank God the line has been erased and we can all show up to the party together.